Phil, as you were speaking, I thought some are really troubled by the idea that God is a jealous God. Um, some are troubled by that uh, because they assume that jealousy is always sinful or always evil. Uh, I think people make that sort of assumption with anger, too, uh, that anger is always sinful, always evil. But God is angry, and righteously so, uh, justly so. And, and the same is true for jealousy. There is a kind of jealousy, of course, that is sinful. But there is also a kind of jealousy that is appropriate. It is right for a husband, for example, to be jealous of his wife, uh, to, to have this in his mind and heart that she should belong only to him and he to her. And indeed, that is the kind of jealousy that God has for his people. Not a human and sinful one, not a passionate one, but a righteous and holy jealousy. The sermon text for today is Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24. And the New Testament reading is Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Philippians 3 Verse 7, here the Apostle Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we have come now to this uh, seventh and final scene in this rather large section in the book of Genesis, which runs from chapter 2, verse 5, through to the end of chapter 3. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5, through to the end of chapter 3 is, is one unit, one section, and it's broken into seven scenes, and uh, we are now in and considering the seventh of these scenes. In this final scene, the Lord God is the sole actor the man named Adam is present, but he is completely passive. Eve is not mentioned at all. So this seventh scene corresponds to the first scene, which ran from Genesis 2, 5 through 17. And there the same was true. The Lord God was the sole actor. The man was present, but completely passive. And in this final scene, God's judgment of the man is brought to a conclusion. That is what is described to us here. God's judgment of the man is brought to a conclusion. Now, it would be good to remember what transpired in the previous scene as we move into this last one. The Lord God first pronounced a curse upon the serpent. After this, He pronounced judgments upon the woman. And then God addressed the man. And here's what He said to the man. And to Adam, He said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember, although that previous scene was primarily about the judgment of God pronounced upon the snake, uh, the woman and the man. The, the grace of God was also on display there. We should not forget that. By God's grace, the man and the woman would go on living. Room was left for repentance. By God's grace, the promise of a, of a victorious Savior was announced to them. And by God's grace, the man and the woman were clothed. Remember, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What a remarkable thing this is. They tried to clothe themselves because of their shame. But God, being gracious, clothed Adam and Eve. Blood was shed. Skins were made and covered uh, the man and the woman. God himself clothed them. And so God was gracious to Adam and Eve, and He is gracious to us today. But the consequences of sin, both Adam's sin and ours, is that life is now marked by difficulty. That was the meaning of that previous passage. Life is marked by perpetual conflict, by pain in the process of bringing forth children, strife in our relationships, toil and frustration in our work, and ultimate vanity given the certainty of death. Life is now marked by trial and tribulation, by travail, because of our sin. In this final scene that is before us today, God's judgment upon the man is brought to a conclusion. And you would do well to note that the most tragic of all the consequences of sin are reserved for this final scene. More tragic than the conflicts which mar the course of human history, more tragic than the increased pain that women experience in the process of childbearing, more tragic than the strife between husband and wife and the toil and frustration that men encounter in their work, indeed even more tragic than the inevitability of physical death and the vanity of life that accompanies it is this, man because of his sin was driven from the presence of God to live out the years of his life alienated from his Maker. Uh, this consequence, our, our alienation from God, our loss of a right relationship with Him, was the most tragic of all the consequences of man's fall into sin. And I might ask, does that strike you as an odd perspective? Is your impulse to reply back to me saying, no, the, the conflicts and strife, the pain and suffering, the certainty of physical death must be considered more, worse punishments than our communion with God having been broken? If that is your perspective, I think it is because you have not experienced the joy of knowing God. You have not learned nor come to believe the truth so wonderfully stated by St. Augustine when he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Now, friends, we were created to know God and to be known by Him. We were designed to live in communion with God, to obey Him and to glorify His name. When Adam fell into sin, all of this was broken and lost. All of the conflict, pain, and strife that we experience in this world, even the event of physical death itself, cannot be compared to the tragedy of having lost that sweet communion with our Maker. 
This is why I read from that Philippians 3 passage at the beginning of, of the sermon, one of the reasons at least. There the Apostle Paul, what does he say? He's, he says, I have lost so much of the pleasures of this world because I have followed after Christ. But do you want to know my perspective on that? It's all rubbish when compared to the excellency of knowing God through faith in Christ Jesus, being clothed with His righteousness, not having obtained a righteousness of my own, but clothed with His righteousness. That is such a a better thing than all of the, the pleasures of this world. Adam, in innocency, knew God. He enjoyed sweet and intimate communion with God in that garden temple which the Lord had made for him. Uh, While Adam was upright, he walked with God, and God walked with him. But when Adam fell into sin, that sweet and intimate communion with God was lost. Adam was not just sent out of the garden. In fact, the text says that he was driven from that place and from God's presence. The language is very strong. It's the same language used in the Old Testament to refer to a husband sending away an unfaithful wife because of her unfaithfulness. Adam was driven from the presence of God. Uh, This loss of a right relationship with God was by far the most tragic of all the consequences of man's sin. Man was made to know God and to glorify and enjoy Him forever. Indeed, Christ Himself said, and this is eternal life. Okay, listen carefully to to Christ's words. He is about to tell us what the essence of eternal life is. And this is eternal life. This is what it means to have life eternal. What does Christ say? That you know, that that they know you. He is speaking to God here. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What does Christ say if we are to give a definition to or describe the essence of having eternal life. What is it? It is the the knowledge of God. It is living in this sweet communion with God. Now through faith in Jesus Christ, because we have fallen, we must come through Him. But here is the essence of eternal life, Christ says. What does it mean to have life eternal? Well, according to Christ, to have eternal life is to know God. To be severed from God, to be alienated from Him, and under His wrath because of our sin is therefore death. This is what it means to exist in a state of death. It is to be severed from God, to be alienated from Him and under His wrath. This is why the Scriptures call men and women who are alive dead if they have not been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Though they are living, they are really dead. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians saying, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What what a strange way of speaking, Paul. You're speaking to people who are alive now and who were alive then, but you are saying that before they came to faith in Christ, they were dead. They existed in a state of death. This was their state of being prior to their having been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Though alive, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. To know God is to have eternal life. To be alienated from Him, therefore, is to have eternal death. Christ came to make dead men and women alive by reconciling them to the Father. Thanks be to God. In the day that Adam ate of the forbidden tree, he died. For in that day he was driven from the presence of God and lost the sweet communion that he once enjoyed with his Maker. Therefore, I suppose that we might say that what is described to us here in this passage, this seventh scene in this 
section, which describes to us the, the, the completion of the judgment of the man, what, what we might say is that what we see here today, what is described here in this passage, is Adam being put to death by God. Yes, it's true, later we will learn that Adam lived for 930 years in total, and then he died, Genesis 5.5. 5. But what I am saying is that in another sense, Adam truly died in the day that he ate of the forbidden fruit, for it was then that he was driven from the presence of his Maker. Let us consider this passage now in detail. In verse 22 of Genesis 3, we read these words, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. I think this is a very interesting verse. And it's also a very important verse. We need to pay careful attention to it. Uh, First of all, notice that Adam is the one who is in focus here. Eve is not mentioned at all. It will become clear as the narrative progresses that everything that is pronounced upon Adam in this passage will also apply to Eve. But notice that Adam in particular is the one who is judged by God in this text. And this is because the covenant of life or of works, or of creation, whichever term you prefer, was made with Adam. Go back and see Genesis 2, 15-17. The covenant of life, or works, or of creation, was made with Adam. The covenant was made with him, and he was the one who broke the covenant. And though it is true that Adam's sin would affect others, indeed all others, including his wife Eve, the judgments were pronounced upon Adam, for he was appointed by God to function as the representative of others in the keeping of this covenant. Secondly, we must answer the question, who was the Lord God speaking to when He said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil? How could it, uh, commentators that do in fact differ on the answer to this question? Uh, some say that He was speaking to the angels. But in my opinion, it is best to think that God was, in fact, addressing Himself when He said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. I think this is the, most, uh, the best of the, of the interpretations uh, that, that we find in, in the commentators. Uh, and, but we might ask, again, how can it be that God would speak to Himself? Well, the rest of Scripture will make it clear that though there is only one God, there is also a plurality of persons or subsistences within the Godhead. And so we are right to ask our children the question, are there more gods than one? And teach them to answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. And we are also right to ask them, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And to expect that they will reply in this way, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. The doctrine of the Trinity is not explicitly taught here in Genesis 3.22, but it is implied. And you would do well to remember that this is not the first time in Genesis where plurality within the Godhead is suggested. From the very beginning of Holy Scripture, we are introduced to one God, the Creator of heaven and earth, and we find that there is plurality within Him. Uh, The rest of Scripture will make it clear that there are, in fact, three persons within the Godhead, Father, Word, and Spirit. Thirdly, what does God mean when He says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil? That's an interesting statement, isn't it? God is having a conversation within Himself, 
And what does he say? Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Stated more precisely, how did man become like God when he rebelled? In, in what sense did God be, man become like God when he rebelled? And, and what does it mean that man and God now share knowing good and evil in common? How are we to understand all of that? Uh, let me state the answer to this question briefly and very directly before demonstrating my interpretation from the text. Man became like God when he rebelled in that he took to himself a right that was only appropriate for God to have, namely the right to know or to determine that which is good and that which is evil. To know good and evil is to decide good and evil. God, the supreme lawgiver, commanded Adam, saying, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man rejected God as the supreme lawgiver when he took to himself that role by eating of that forbidden tree. It was an act of rebellion. In essence, Adam said this when he ate, I will not submit to God, but instead I will be God myself. I will determine I will decide that which is good and evil, right and wrong, true and false. Uh, the meaning of the Hebrew word translated as knowing in this phrase uh, certainly allows for this interpretation. Uh, to know is to understand or to perceive. It is right for God to know, to understand, or to perceive that which is good and evil. It is right for Him to give laws to man which correspond to His perception of good and evil, which is always perfect and true. And it is good and right for man to agree with God's perspective concerning good and evil and to live in obedience to His laws. On the other hand, it is terribly wrong for the creature to disagree with his Maker, to seek to establish his own law so that he might live independent from his God. And this is what Adam did when he ate of that tree. He pursued wisdom apart from God, who is the source of all wisdom. He sought to define good and evil on his own and in rebellion against his maker. When he ate, he sought to establish his autonomy so that he might go on living independent from God. This is the essence of Adam's sin. And this interpretation of the statement, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, also fits perfectly with the story of Genesis. Um, when we encounter this, this communication within God himself, in Genesis 3.22, with the words, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. I think it is meant to remind us of a previous conversation within the Godhead that was revealed to us. Uh, if you're paying attention to the narrative of Genesis, you'll instantly uh, remember, Hey, this is not the first time that God has spoken within Himself. Uh, this is not the first time we've, in fact, encountered this before. We should remember the words of Genesis 1, 26 through uh, 27. There we heard God speaking within Himself. And what was He talking about? He said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. There in Genesis 1, 26-27, we encounter a conversation within the Godhead. The one true God said, let us make man in our image. And then what did the one true God do? He created man, singular, in his image, and in such a way that his plurality would be reflected. In the image of God, He created him, male and female. He created them. And I believe it is very important for us to recognize the connection between Genesis 3.22 and Genesis 1.26-27. What clues us to the connection between these two passages, except that God is found having a conversation within Himself. It, it should cause the reader to stop and to say, well, what do these two passages have in common with one another? In both passages, we encounter something peculiar. A conversation that God had within Himself is revealed to us, and I think this is meant to grab our attention. This is meant to provoke the reader to pause and to ask, who is God speaking to? And and when we compare these two passages, and I think they are meant to be compared, we find that they both have something important to say regarding the nature of man and man's relationship to God. Stated differently, these two texts, when we set them side by side, reveal that man is like God in some respects. That man is like God in some respects, but he is also not like God in other respects. Uh, what did Genesis 1, 26-27 reveal to us? Well, it revealed that man was in fact made in the image of God. God created man, male and female, to be like him, to image him, to correspond to him. And I will not go into all that that entails, for that has already been done. But here we must simply remember that man was created by God to be like God in some respects. This is very significant. But to say that man was made in the image of God, or that man was made to be like God, does not mean that man is God. You understand that? Man is like God, but he is not God. And so though it is true that some similarities exist between God and man, and this by God's design, it must also be confessed that the differences between the Creator and the creature are very vast. God is, for example, omnipotent. Man is not. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is eternal. Man is none of those things. In short... God is the creator, man is the creation. God is supreme, man is to live in perpetual subordination to God. God is God and man is man. And so though it be true that man was made in the image of God and is in some respects like him, man must never forget that he is not God. That man is not God and that man was to go on living in perpetual submission to God was made clear by the fact that God created man placed him in the garden, provided for him, commanded the man to keep the garden and to eat of the one tree and not the other. All of these facts that are brought forth in this narrative communicate that God is supreme and man is to live in subordination to God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil functioned as a symbol of the created order of things. God, being supreme, knows and determines that which is good and that which is evil, and He gave man His law. The question was, 
Would man live as if God were supreme over him? Would man live in submission to his maker? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolized this order of things, and it also put the man to the test. It put the man to the test. Would he live in subjection to his maker? And what did the tempter say when he approached Eve? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? He began to question the word of God, the law of God. He called it into question. And then afterwards, the serpent said, you will not surely die, for God knows, here is what God really knows, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We have already learned that God created man in His image. They already had the image of God and were like Him in some respects. But what is the serpent saying? God really knows that if you eat of this tree, you will become even more like Him. Indeed, you will become just like Him. God's yourselves. No longer will you have to live in subordination to this God, but you can determine for yourselves right from wrong, good for evil. You can be autonomous, independent. God's yourselves. In other words, God has lied to you. This tree that God has forbidden actually has the power to give you life and wisdom. Yes, you have been made in God's image, but if you would only eat of this tree, then truly you would be like God, no longer having to live in subordination to Him. There is freedom in this tree, is what the serpent said to Eve. There is freedom in this tree. When you eat of it, you will cast off the bonds of God. When you eat of it, you will become truly autonomous and independent, as God Himself now is. Adam and Eve believed this lie, and so they ate. And when the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, he spoke truth concerning the man, didn't he? In a sense, the man had become like God, knowing good and evil. But it is also obvious that God spoke these words in a kind of sarcastic and condescending sort of way. There's irony in his words. There's truth in them, but there is also irony here. Did Adam become like God when he ate of the forbidden tree? The answer is yes, as I have already said, in taking to himself something that belonged only to God, rightly. But the answer is also no. It is no in that Adam was still a man after he ate of that tree, and he was not God. Adam the creature was still the creature. He was not elevated at all when he ate of the forbidden tree. In fact, Adam fell when he ate of it. The image of God that he did possess by virtue of his creation was now marred and twisted. So it might actually be said that Adam was less like God after his fall into sin and certainly not more like him, you see. So there's truth in the words of God here, but there is also irony in it. In fact, the opposite is true. Adam is now fallen. And so I believe what we find here is God, in a sense, mocking Adam with these words, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Certainly this was to impress all the more strongly upon Adam the foolishness of his sin. As I was considering this passage here and considering the fact that there was a condescending tone uh, to God's language here, a, a kind of sarcasm. There's irony in his words. Immediately the passage that came to mind is Psalm 2. And there the psalmist 
asks this question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? He's considering the nations of the world and he sees how they, they rage against God and they plot in vain to throw off his bonds. Listen to the text as it progresses. The kings of the earth set themselves, in other words, they, they exalt themselves and set themselves up as supreme. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they are like their father Adam, aren't they? Their desire is to... to cast off the, the bonds that God has set upon him, them, to, to live independent from Him, to have ultimate and supreme authority, and to give no mind to God at all. But what does God do when He looks down upon these kings who seek to live independent from Him, not realizing that their kingship was given to them by God, and that they were to serve as kings under His authority? What does God do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, and on and on the passage goes. God sits in heaven and He says, You fools, you fools, you think you're supreme, but indeed you live under My power. He laughs, He holds them in derision. The second half of verse 22 in Genesis 3, um, God begins to speak a word of judgment concerning Adam, saying, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Notice how the voice of God drops off at the end of this verse, and the voice of the narrator, Moses, picks up, saying, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden, etc., etc. When you read this, it's kind of unusual, isn't it? Do you, know, do you notice what I'm saying here? God begins to speak. And then all of a sudden, his voice just kind of is left suspended in midair. It drops off and the, the voice of the narrator picks up. I, why is this? Well, perhaps the words of judgment would be too much for us to bear if they came from God's lips. And so Moses intervenes to describe the result to us. Or perhaps the falling off of God's voice is meant to communicate that final judgment has been delayed. This seems to me to be the effect. God begins to pronounce judgment, then His words are suspended, creating a sense of delay. And Moses resumes with the description of what then transpired. And what does Moses say? Well, in verse 23 we read, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Notice that though Adam was judged, and though the loss of communion with God was terribly tragic, this was not the final judgment. Take note of that. This was not the final judgment. Adam was sent out of the garden to toil in his labor. There Adam would work the ground. And as he worked the ground, he would be reminded of, of two things. From this ground he was taken. He would have been reminded that he is a creature and not God. And to the ground he would one day return. The wages of sin is death, both spiritual and physical. As Adam worked the ground, these two things would have been uh, brought uh, before him continuously. You are a creature, and because of your sin, you will return to this dust, to this ground. You will be put into it. 
In verse 24, we read, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. When God sent Adam out of the garden, it was to prohibit him from having access to the tree of life. Remember, God said, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever, eat and live forever. Etc., etc. For, for this reason, he was sent out of the garden to, to bar him from having access to the tree of life. Now, pay careful attention here, brothers and sisters. The tree of life was not a magical tree, as if eating from it would automatically confer eternal life. The tree of life, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was a sacramental tree. It was It it symbolized obedience to God and the life that would be found in God by going the way of obedience. When Adam was driven out of the garden, cherubim, and by the way, this is in the plural, in in the Hebrew, uh, so two at least angels were were sent there to guard the entrance with a flaming sword. And, And what did that communicate? Well, it communicated in no uncertain terms that the way to eternal life that was once open to the man through obedience to the law of God was no longer open to him. If Adam were to have eternal life, it would need to be obtained through something other than the covenant of works that was made with him in the garden of which the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a sign. For that covenant had been broken. If Adam were to enter into eternal life, it would need to be by some other way than through the keeping of God's law, for he had sinned against it already, and the wages of sin is death. To use Paul's words, for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This was the message that was sent to Adam, and I think it was a very powerful message. God drove him from the garden, and he placed his cherubim, and a flaming sword at its entrance. The way to glory is now shut. This way to eternal life is no more. Look elsewhere is the message that was sent Adam. Look elsewhere. You will not find eternal life here through the keeping of God's law and by the eating of the tree of life. Look elsewhere, namely to the Savior that God has promised to provide. As it was with the previous passage, so it is with this one. Uh, Though these texts are primarily about the judgments of God, the gospel of Christ is also present here. And how is it present here, you might ask? Well, I want to tell you, uh, we must remember who this book, Genesis, was written by and for whom it was written. Who was it written by? It was written by Moses. And who was it originally written for? Yes, it was written for you and me as well. But who was it originally written for? It was written by Moses and for the people of Israel that had been redeemed from Egypt originally. And we should also remember that Moses did not only write Genesis, but also the rest of the Pentateuch, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We are not supposed to read just Genesis, but but all of these books, and indeed the rest of Holy Scripture that has been given since Moses' time. And in some of those books, the rest of the Pentateuch, the design and the eventual construction of the tabernacle will be described to us. And what will we find? Except that when the tabernacle is built, 
It is meant to remind the worshiper who is approaching God through the shedding of blood of Eden. It is meant to remind the worshiper of Eden. For example, the entrance to the tabernacle and the temple was to face in which direction do you think? It was to face to the east. Notice where the entrance to Eden was, in which direction it faced. It faced to the east. Uh, The reader is supposed to recognize the similarities between these two things, and and, and the reader is to understand what is being communicated here to us in, in the construction of the tabernacle and later the temple. What is God saying? Except that a way to salvation is still open to you. It's still provided. You, through Adam, were driven from the presence of God, but here the presence of God is is contained within this tabernacle and temple. It is, he is here present, and, and you may approach Him, not through the keeping of the law, mind you, but by the shedding of blood. But by the shedding of blood. It would take a very long time to, to show and to demonstrate all the ways in which the temple and tabernacle uh, pictured Eden and communicated all of these principles that I am summarizing for you now. Uh, But notice the entrance of the temple was to face east, and also that cherubim were embroidered upon the curtain which separated the holy place from the most holy place in that tabernacle and temple. Think of that for a moment. Cherubim were set at the entrance to Eden, saying to Adam, life cannot be found in the way that it could have been found before you fell. Look some other way. But here as the people of God come to worship their God, as He is present there in His tabernacle and temple, they look up and they see the cherubim guarding the most holy place um, where the presence of God was found. And on each side of the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the law of God, stood cherubim guarding, guarding as it were, man's approach to God. The Israelites who read Genesis and all who would read it afterwards would make these connections and they would also understand the meaning. Though Adam was driven from the temple of Eden and though the way to life through the keeping of the law was now shut up and guarded, God by His grace has provided another way to come into His presence, not through the keeping of the law, but through sacrifice, not by works, but by His grace. And you would do well to remember that after Christ died for our sins, The veil on that temple, which had the cherubim embroidered upon it, was torn in two, not from bottom to top as if a man accomplished this, but from top to bottom because God Himself has accomplished this through the Christ whom He sent. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. The writer to the Hebrews is here bringing all of these things together for the new covenant people of God saying, Do you see what Christ has done for you? He has opened up the way through the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood on our behalf. I'd like to conclude by making three points of application, and they are brief. First of all, do you consider the loss of communion with God to be the most tragic of all the consequences of our sin? Do you think in that way? 
Or do you have such a low view of God and such a high view of this world and of the pleasures found within it that you weep more at the thought of the loss of worldly comforts and pleasures than at the thought of the loss with communion with God himself? The Christian will agree with Augustine and say, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee, in you, God. Here is where we find true rest, in knowing you. And the Christian will agree with Paul, and we will say, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Uh, Truly, there is no greater pleasure in all the world than to know God through Christ whom he has sent. Secondly, I ask, have you submitted to God and to his law as revealed to us in his holy word? Adam's sin was that he rebelled against God's word. He sought to pursue wisdom apart from God. He sought to know good and evil, right and wrong, truth from error on his own. This sin of rebellion abounds within our world today. How common it is for the sons and daughters of Adam to seek to establish their own standards, their own truth, so that they might go their own way. Our days are very much like the days of the judges of Israel when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 17.6 It is not surprising to find that this is the way of the world. It's sad, but not surprising. But sadly, it is also the way of the church, so-called. Most, it would seem to me, give little attention to God's law. Very few care to ask, how has God commanded that he be worshipped? When it comes to establishing the doctrines of the church, God's word is often pushed to the side and is replaced with rationalism, with emotionalism, with pragmatism. And if you do not know what those words mean, I'll state it a bit differently. Many Christians today refuse to come under God's authority, under the authority of His word, so as to submit to it. Instead, they stand over God's word and they judge it according to their standards. They will believe and teach that which makes sense to them, that which feels right to them, or that which works in their opinion. But they refuse to surrender themselves to God's word, to believe what it says in humility. Instead of receiving with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls, as James puts it, they pridefully stand over the word of God to judge it according to their standards. And when they do prove And when they do this, they do indeed prove that they are in Adam and not in Christ. And so I ask you the question, have you submitted to God and to His law as revealed to us in His holy word? Thirdly, I must ask, are you trusting in your own righteousness or in Christ's? Uh, Friends, don't you see that the way to life through the covenant of works is closed off now? The way to eternity Eternal life through obedience to God's law is no longer open to any of the natural sons and daughters of Adam. Adam was able to earn eternal life through obedience to God's law while in the garden, but when he sinned, he was driven out, and the way to the tree of life was shut up and guarded. By works of the law, by your good deeds, by your morality, by your law-keeping, no human being will be justified in God's sight, Paul says. But God has graciously promised and provided another way. He sent a Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. He was a true son of Adam. He had to be if he was to represent the sons and daughters of Adam and pay for their sins. But more than that, he was the son of God. He had to be if he was to keep God's law. 
bear the sins of all of God's elect, and conquer sin and death by raising on the third day. Indeed, salvation is found only in Him. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Christ said. And for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your grace and mercy. We thank You for Christ Jesus, the life that He lived in obedience to Your law, the death that He died as a substitute for sinners, and His victorious resurrection and His ascension to Your right hand. We thank You for Christ, and we also thank You for Your Word, which so richly and beautifully and clearly points us to Christ from beginning to end. We thank you for your word, Lord. I pray for this particular congregation that you would help us to treasure your word. Make us good students of it. May we look upon it carefully from beginning to end. And may we be truly concerned with living in obedience to it. God, I do pray for those who are in Christ that you would strengthen them in him, that they would pursue him with all that they are. May they find their delight, God, in knowing you and in knowing Christ Jesus. May that be the delight of their life. Father, for those who do not yet know Christ, I pray that you would draw them. Bring them to repentance, Lord. Give them faith so that they might look upon Him and no longer trust in their own works, but in the righteousness that is available through faith in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would draw them, Lord, that we would see them baptized in obedience to your commands and joined to your church, your people called out of this world. God, we pray these things for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.